Hello, I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 53 of... Round the Archives. It was sort of planned as a sort of Halloween special. It was. At one point. It was. But then things happened. Yes. And now it's not a Halloween special. No, there's a, there's a few little things, bit of scariness. There's a few things about scary things. Yes. But nowhere near what no. we planned. No. Anyway, so scary specials are getting boring. Anyway. Yeah, we, we've sort of done yeah, that. Been there, we? done that. Yeah. Uh, because there are two people we should yes. pay tribute to uh, during this issue, as well as as well as the other stuff. So we'll kick off by gi- giving our tribute to Diana Rigg as we look at two episodes of The Avengers. <laughs> Good afternoon, Andrew. Right, kicking off with mm-hmm. remembering Diana Rigg. Yes. Now, we should say that Warren's written us a lovely piece. He has. On that. He's also read that piece out on Martin's radio show. He has. Of which more anon. Yes. But uh, we've watched two of episodes of The Avengers we have. today. Yes. A Touch of Brimstone. Mm-hmm. An epic. Yes. Uh, now, I... I'll lay me cards on the table. Mm-hmm. I always feel like I should like the Avengers more than I possibly actually do. Okay. Uh, you know, a lot of our friends are big Avengers fans. Yes. But it's not a show I really go back to very often. We've okay, got we've yeah. got the complete set of DVDs. Well, sort of. Yeah, which are impossible to get out of the sleeves. Yes. <laughs> Maybe that's why I don't watch it much because it's such an effort <laughs> to get them out. It's they're really tightly pushed in, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. But what did you think of these? These episodes, and more to the point, what do you think of Diana Rigg in them? I thought um, she held her own very well mm. in a part that's slightly unforgiving for a woman because, yeah. well, the name tells it all. Yeah, she's called Emma Peel yeah. because she's got man appeal. Yeah, which is deeply sexist. So, do you think there's a sort of cynical sort of reason behind her character? Yes. Yeah. The, the, the appeal is to put her in as many different revealing outfits as yeah. possible to get men watching. Well, Touch of Brimstone is infamous for oh, that. Yes. For that, isn't that, it? I think the whole point of that episode is for those scenes with her dressed as, as the Queen of Sin. Yeah. But epic, I think. Um, I, I found it a, a, a lot better for her. Yes, that um, serves... A, that one, actually, I was Because watching, it is her episode. Yeah, I was yeah. watching it thinking, they haven't cut back to Steed for about yeah. ten Steed's minutes. Steed's just in the, in the house all the time. Yeah. So, <laughs> Do, doing nothing, no, frankly. I mean, he does save the day. Yeah. It would have been nice if she could have saved herself. But yeah. I get in the context of the story they're trying to tell, 
it's always the a man that comes along and saves yeah. the heroine from the train or the saw or whatever. But these episodes are only about a year apart. Yes. And it, it, I found it really interesting how much I preferred Epic to A Touch yeah. of Brimstone. There's a definitely different feel and, to and, it. And I think Brimstone is often held up as a very good episode. Mm-hmm. And technically it is. Mm. You know, they're both directed by James Hill. They've yeah. both got Peter Wingardium. Yes. They're both written by Brian Clemens. Yes. So they're very closely linked in terms of mm-hmm. production. But I think the trouble with Brimstone for me starts with that opening scene mm-hmm. where you've got Peter Wingard's appearing and disappearing chocolates. Yes. That he's got this chair with some chocolates on the arm. And Why then does they... he push the chair on as well? I don't know. Just just to be arty. That's the trouble. Yeah. Yeah. A, a, a lot of this is um, how can we compose an arty picture? Mm. And because it's shot on film, yeah. that's often the overriding concern, I find. Mm-hmm. Because, um, of course, the show evolves from a, from a live videotape yes. production. Yeah. And now in sort of the, the first black and white film season, I almost get the feeling people don't quite know how to handle film. It sounds mm-hmm. a horrible thing to say. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to Epic, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of editing in Brimstone that I, mm-hmm. I, I, just, I just... It took me out of it. I didn't believe in the world. No. And because the plot, such as it is, mm-hmm. is so dialed down, mm-hmm. I couldn't quite work out what the threat was a lot of the time. No, no. It needs to be made a bigger threat of what is supposed to happen mm. rather yeah. than... Yeah. yeah. Um, but but Epic, because you've got... It, it centres on Emma and, mm-hmm. you know, she is... Yes, okay, she's a woman in peril, perhaps yes. she is, but she's never really flustered by it. No, she's, that's, that's she, she's thing. not... She doesn't worry about it at all. She just, in fact, she sort of rolls her eyes at several points because it's just yeah, just so get on ridiculous. with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Peter Wingard is having fun. Oh, it has yeah. to be said. Peter Wingard is is having great fun, overacting madly, <laughs> but in character because yeah. the actor he plays an actor. Yeah. And the actor is is an overactor. Yeah. Well, that's the clever thing about Epic, I think, uh, because it's about making of a film. The mm-hmm. problems that I have with the production for Brimstone mm-hmm. are completely overcome because yes. you get ridiculous cuts and, and things like that in that Emma's wandering about and suddenly Wingard will come on in a completely different costume yes. and makeup and yeah. there's been no time for him no. to change. Yeah. And as you said, Steed just... Uh, what is the time scale of this? How long does it take, yeah. all of this stuff? Yeah. It's a couple of hours, I yeah. think. And yeah. then, then you've got the filming of her, mm. and you're wondering where they get all the camera angles yeah. in the film that they've made because yeah. the camera isn't there in any of the shots. No. So, yeah, it's 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 completely ridiculous, mm-hmm. but it's so stylized now yeah. that I can accept it. Yes, I, yeah. I think I think the, the the black and white ones are sort of they're a weird halfway house between sort of trying to be a bit odd mm. but not trying hard enough no. I, th- I think no. that's what it is and you know by the time you're in full prison it's like full you know the prisoner territory with yeah. epic isn't it mm-hmm. is you've got the weird slow-mo sequences yeah where she's got like like the wedding and the hearse mm-hmm. and, and and the tombstones and all yeah. of that and the leaves blowing mm-hmm. and th- that's quite brave really yeah. i think 
Yeah. I mean, because I did say to you about maybe doing the Winged Avenger, and yes. you've got that wonderful fight scene. Oh, with the um, with the with the captions. The captions. Yeah. It's very Batman esque. Actually, isn't it? W- watching this one, I'd forgotten about the caption. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, oh, right, or okay. something. Yeah. And it just made me think of the Feast of Stephen. Oh, you know, right, The yeah. second half of that. Yeah. And you've got the tinkly piano music yes. as well. Yes. I mean, the only thing I, I I did think, and it's it's to do with the because um, the film director he carried. He's filming on a hand-cranked camera. Yeah. So he's having to cr- turn the crank the whole time <laughs> until he plays the piano at the end. Yeah. Then who's turning the crank on the camera? Yeah. It's suddenly not a problem now. Yeah. So. No, I, th- I think the thing on the big camera he's got, he- he's adjusting like sort of knobs oh, for the position. Oh, he's adjusting the position. Oh, right, for the okay. position. I think that's yeah, what it is. You know, I'm, I'm no expert yeah. on, no, no. on film well, cameras. I did wonder because I was thinking, yeah. that would be tiring cranking that the whole time otherwise. Yeah, yeah. but you might be right actually. Yes, yeah. sorry. I, I stand, sit. What connected. do you think of her green outfit? It's very luminous. Luminous. Is yes. That she's, she's, yeah, it's, you, you can't miss her. Yeah. But this is that's not an exploitative costume, is no, it? No, it's not. No, no, it's no. a very practical costume in yeah. terms of having to run around because she's throw got Peter Wingard about. and throw Peter Wingard the stand. Well, in long shot, yeah, because um, she's got flat shoes on. Mm. She's got a jacket and trousers and a top on. She yeah. hasn't got a short skirt. She's not got the Doctor Who companion thing of having to run around in the the shortest skirt possible. Yeah. So yeah, it's a very practical costume. Yeah, but but you you said. You know, the Avengers is not necessarily the thing you remember Diana Rigg for, no. is it? No, I first saw Diana Rigg in um, Mother Love, mm. I think, where she's she's uh, the manipulative um, Helena she plays. And yeah. I, I really wish that somebody would... Uh, I'm, there must be somebody in the production somewhere that's blocking it for it never to have come out on DVD. Because a lot of people, since she died, have said, oh, I'd like to see it again. Um, but it's not commercially available and it's not available on... Um, I think it was on YouTube at one point, but it's not available on sort of iPlayer or anything. But, yeah, she's... The character, I've... I've I watched it and then I read the book afterwards and she's, she's really good at showing this sort of really nasty side of mm. humanity. Yeah. So she's also in the Mrs Bradley Mysteries with... Um, Peter Davison. Oh, right. And I think, and a very young David Tennant is yeah, one of one episode. I actually watched that. It's no. very good. It's 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 a it's a twenty set detective drama, and she's a she's a right. lady detective who breaks all the rules. <laughs> but she's she's very good. Yeah, I mean, get getting back to to what we watched. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it sort of showed up to me that when we had Brimstone, she comes on with the snake. The first thing I said to you is, "I hope the snake's all right." right. Yeah, the snake's fine. <laughs> The snake gets put on a post and happily has a slither yeah, around. Yeah. I did wonder so. when he was going to come back. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, both of these episodes, really really good for guest stars. I think Brimstone yeah. actually has got better guest stars yeah. overall. Because yeah, I'd forgotten Colin Jeevans was yes. in it. I mean, he doesn't get doesn't get a lot to do. Yeah. I mean, you've got Colin Jeevans, you've got um, Jeremy Young, yeah. who I, I should have recognised him from his nose, but I yeah. spent the whole episode going, I know the face... Can't remember the name. It's it's Jeremy. He's, he's one of those actors yeah. that sort of manages to pop up on lots of things, but not be the lead. And you also get um, Van der Volk's assistant right. in it as well, Michael okay. Latimer. One one thing I did say to you is that um, 
again another reason i didn't quite believe the world of brimstone because you've got these sort of group of um sort of important blokes i guess that well, i guess they consider themselves to be they consider themselves to be important and i'm not sure they are that yeah I, I did imagine like it being attended by members of the present government <laughs> fra- quite <laughs> yeah. frankly yeah. um and that steed mixes in these high class circles mm-hmm. again possibly a reason why i can never quite identify with steed mm-hmm. he's a bit too posh and a bit too sure of himself for yes. my liking yeah. you know um that's why i always prefer mr reader to yes. steed yeah because yeah. I, I can identify with mr reader but i can't with steed mm-hmm. but yeah he mixes in all these high class circles yeah and n- no none of these people know who he is no and you'd think by this point you know they would and yes. it, it does make make me feel that the episodes never have consequences no that it's almost like an anthology series mm-hmm. that that you know steed is meant to be a mysterious figure each week yeah and after a couple of years he wouldn't be no yeah Mm. whereas whereas epic um it, it's the other way round mm. and that steed doesn't recognize mm. peter wingard now i know i know the joke is that he's an actor anyway yeah. and he eventually does recognize him but mm-hmm. be, I, I was going well you met him a year ago yeah. <laughs> and he fell down a trap door yes. you know <laughs> why do why don't you go oh he reminds me a bit of that bloke we you know yeah so i I, th- I think that's what i think that's a bit weird i mm-hmm. mean i'm starting to wonder as i get older whether i just generally have a problem with film possibly in, yeah. in that because we said this about the jack the ripper thing yes it, didn't it, we? It, it video looks like you're mm. in the room yeah film reminds you yeah. you're watching yeah a screen yeah so when you're trying to build a world yeah I, th- I think the black and white Avengers do face a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my problem. I yeah. realise that. And, yeah. and there are other people that absolutely love the show and with very good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to say it's not well done. No, it's no. just not quite my thing. No. Because, and this is going to c- cause some ructions, right. I have seen episodes of Zed Cars written yeah. by Pip and Jane Baker mm-hmm. where I believe in the world a hell of a lot more. Yeah than i yeah. do in the world of the avengers it's I can really understand weird that. yeah yeah because yeah, there's there is one episode of of zed cars mm. written by pip and jane that was on youtube for a while um which is set in a quarry isn't it yeah and it, a lot of the scenes you could be standing yeah. behind the person on screen yeah. watching over their shoulder that's the one with the motorbikes in where you can yeah. hardly hear the dialogue no, in can't. some of it you can't but, but i'm thinking yes that's real yeah yeah yeah. And we'll get on to Zed Cars at the end of the, yes. in the e- we'll talk about episode Frank for, for Frank Windsor. Yeah. But I'm glad we chose these two mm-hmm. as a pair. Because yeah. I think some people will really prefer one episode over the other. Yes. But not necessarily the one that I prefer. No. And no. I prefer Epic. Yes. Because it's absolutely going for broke. Mm-hmm. It really is going, you know, we're a film series. We can be as blooming mad as we like <laughs> and it doesn't matter yes and i always admire that sort of bravery yeah. you know yeah. as, as i said you know it does remind me a bit of the prisoner yeah i can see that and, and yeah. the prisoner is not necessarily a series i love either mm-hmm. um oh you're gonna annoy so many people yeah <laughs> but i acknowledge how well done it is yeah and and there's a difference between a matter of taste and, mm-hmm. and, and sort of knocking something for its production. Mm-hmm. And stuff can be really well made, but just not quite click with me. Mm-hmm. But Epic really did. Yes, Epic it was, really worked for me. It was a fun episode. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's 
it's a bit perils of Pauline because yeah. she's running from one thing to another, isn't yeah. she? But it knows that. It knows that. Yeah. And as a uh, character, she never gives in to that. Yeah. She never loses and, her core. And I think it's a really good show show piece yeah. for her. She's a yeah. very she's very strong in it. Yeah. Very yeah. strong. So there you are. You know, even when she's tied to the circular yeah, saw, she's just rolling she's just, her eyes. Like, yeah, get on with it. Yeah, come yeah. on, <laughs> silly boys. Yeah. Yeah. There you are. There's Diana Rigg. Yes. And as, as we said, go and read Warren's piece. It is a lovely piece. Though, by the way, Warren, it's Mrs. Pumphrey, not Mrs. Palfrey. Yes. <laughs> Please get it right I, next I time. I did edit that bit, so I did change that. Yeah. But there we are. There's the Avengers, and we'll be back again later in the episode with some Zed cars. We will. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for doing that with me, Lisa. Thank you for doing it, Andrew. Well, hey. <laughs> Should point out that we do have the Blu-ray of the Cybernauts episodes. Yes. But what was the main reason you bought that, Lisa? The adverts. Yeah. yeah. You got a Blu-ray just of adverts, I do. If anybody yeah. wants to release a Blu-ray or a DVD of just adverts, I would buy it. Yeah. Now, the first of two articles on this theme, mm-hmm. as Paul joins us to look at... Scary Things. Mind you, it does sound like he's going through his cutlery drawer at the start. Hello, Round the Archives listeners. It's me, Paul the Shy Yeti. Paul Chandler from the, the Shy Life Podcast. I'm here, yes. How are you doing, Paul? Uh, hello, we're joined by my uh, my my friend, Dealey the Cat, who probably won't say anything. But... Sorry, Deals, I'm doing an article for Round the Archives, so uh, I'm sure we can exist in peaceful coexistence, right? Right. Okay. So, hello, listeners. Um, uh, now, this time, I'm by myself. I don't have Toppy Smelly with me or, or, or Mr. Nick Goodman. Um, and, and this time, I'm just going to just gonna do you a little chatter, really. Um, we were talking about sort of scary things, scary TV. But I want to sort of talk about it um, sort of as scary TV, as a, as a gateway to, to me becoming a big horror film fan i mean i mean most of the horror films i i enjoy are well i like 60s ones i like amicus films uh, some of the hammer films i like a lot of 70s giallo um with or without bad uh dubbing <laughs> it's sometimes better with bad dubbing really um i i like uh, slasher films i like uh, in the 90s i like things like scream there are still horror films that come out that that I enjoy now, but uh, uh, they're perhaps uh, harder to pick through and, and not 
always the obvious blockbusters. But along with all the TV shows I have on DVD, I also have a lot of horror um, on DVD and Blu-ray, um, digital, on my phone. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm sure if I counted out what I have, um, the horror stuff probably equals the TV stuff. So what is the point I'm trying to make? Well, I suppose when I talk to other horror fans, I'm sure I'm not the only one who came from the background of being a fan of TV. But I, I do feel when I talk to other horror fans, a lot of them, uh, that they got into horror, perhaps because they had an older brother or sister who liked horror and um, they had access to scary movies or somehow, um, if we're talking about people more our age, more my age, perhaps they were able to get uh, videos out of um, video rental stores uh, maybe earlier than they should have done. Anyway, they... One way or another, whether they watched horror films on late-night TV, they kind of came in at a higher level, uh, if you like. They came into liking horror because they watched maybe not the most scariest horror films, but they maybe they started with Hammer films or older films that might have been on um, um, the BBC or ITV, shown late at night. Um, now, I also... Whereas for me, that was probably the, the middle stage... I definitely got to the stage by the late 80s. And by the time I owned my own video player, which was about 88, I think, um, I was starting to then set videos for horror films I was seeing on um, ITV. In our area, there was Late Night Late, which is where I saw things like Twilight Zone and Night Gallery and various horror films. I always think it's strange that there's a, a horror film from the 70s called I Don't Want to Be Born with Joan, with Joan Collins is sort of like an omen ripoff i guess um she, she has a baby that's kind of demonic and um, it, it's 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 very very over the top and pretty camp and yeah i've always kind of like that but it was tv where i first saw things like the wicker man but bef- bef- i feel like almost before it had a, a cult following but i may be wrong i'm sure you know, probably more because I was young and I didn't know much about the following of it, but certainly before it started being released on um, DVD and video and, and um, was celebrated like it is today. So, yeah, if there was a scary film on, I'd try and set the video for it. But, uh, as I say, that's sort of the middle stage. And then when I went to university, I was then more able to go to Blockbuster Video and buy things like... Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, um, Halloween, Friday the 13th, those sorts of films. But I, I guess I, what I'm saying is that I was kind of a nervous horror fan to start with, and I still can be if, to this day. Um, if I know that a film is particularly sort of, uh, has a particularly bad reputation or, or of being scary or gory or whatever, um, yeah, perhaps it stays on my shelf longer before I first watch it. But back in the early 90s when I was watching things like The Evil Dead, I, I would sit there and, I'd, and I'd, I may have said this before, but I would whiz through the tape, watch it sort of on fast forward so that I would know when the scary bits were coming. That's partly because I was often watching them by myself. Didn't have that many friends at that point who were um, into horror films because many of my friends, such as Andrew and Lisa and Nick, uh, well, Nick's more into horror films, he, but um, I would say that my background is more that my friends were fans of TV. So, yeah, that's why I'm here. But, uh, so yeah, some of my explorations into horror films were more um, 
tentative and nervous and um, you know trying to make it as um, comfortable as possible but I really wanted to watch them but I didn't want to be too scared but um, as I say we're going the wrong direction in my fandom because the reason I was at that stage in the 90s or or at that middle stage in the late 80s with, with my new video player was that growing up I always liked the scary bits and of course we go back to hiding behind the the sofa or um which i think i probably did do a couple of times it almost feels like um <laughs> it's such a cliche that people hid behind the sofa but i think that's probably what we mostly did do um except that the sofa in my house was usually pushed right up to the wall so um yeah i i, I don't really have the memories uh to confirm or deny but I'm i'm sure i did hide behind sofas or chairs or doors or something so yes obviously you know you've got the cliffhangers in doctor who and i'm such a big fan of of cliffhangers and and scary moments like that and i'm sure i've mentioned probably on um around the archives in conversation that i definitely remember an episode of the incredible hulk with um the hulk inside a box being trapped and changing and and i didn't really know whether the incredible hulk was a goodie a baddie or what He, he was just hulkish i mean i know that bruce banner was nice but i really wasn't sure whether i was supposed to like or dislike the hulk and it's pretty scary basically i also remember um probably getting to watch it was a bit like uh, the nearest i sort of had to perhaps an older brother or sister in this case were my babysitters um there were uh, two sisters alex and paula and they and i can't remember if they used to come around and babysit me together or sometimes i'd get one or the other but but definitely around the time of sapphire and steel um my parents seemed to be out quite a lot and they would come around and i'd get to watch sapphire and steel because they wanted to watch it so yeah i definitely remember seeing scenes from story four of sapphire and steel and story and story six and and you know scary stuff i've also said before how my parents let me watch day of the triffids in 81 when i was about eight and I watched the first episode and I think I was so obviously petrified by it that uh, I wasn't allowed to watch the rest of it. And even when it was repeated in 83, they presumed that because I'd been scared two years before, well, I'd still be scared. But I think I did manage to get away with watching it. I was 10 in 83. There's one thing that I'm not sure I have mentioned in conversation. I think it was so scary because it was a different type of scary. It wasn't supernatural, it wasn't sci-fi, it wasn't horror. Um, and that was the TV show The Mad Death about um, rabid dogs or rabid animals. And I, I just remember, I was a bit nervous of dogs anyway because I'd had a few close shaves with angry dogs when I was little. Um, and also, well, later in the decade when I was a paperboy. But, um, but that hadn't happened yet. But, <laughs> um, but the, yeah, The Mad Death, because it was scary and there was a scene of a man sort of you know, having a bad reaction or to the bite. I, I just remember it being, you know, a, a there were scary dogs, and then somebody somebody was being made, for want of a better word, sick from the dog bite. And I, I didn't really know anything about rabies or anything about what was going on. It just seemed very, very scary. And I think that's the one area where I haven't sort of gone back to. Uh, I've never wanted to really see the Mad Death. I know it's on DVD now, but I think it's probably because. It's a real-life horror. It's something that could happen, um, well, more or less. Um, I remember it haunted me so much that 
around that time, we used to go to the Channel Islands, or soon after. And um, when we went on sort of boat trips to Herm or Sark, or even around the Channel Islands, the, like Jersey and Guernsey, the, the, you would see sort of signs about the potential danger of bringing animals onto the island if, if they were sick. Um, and it was close enough to having seen those few scenes in The Mad Death that that, that made that spooked me out when I saw that. Um, so that's the, the one thing that has sort of stayed with me. And I, I, I just don't... doesn't appeal to me to watch it now. Um, I guess in the same way as Where the Wind Blows, I saw that. I hadn't seen that f- before and I saw it recently. And I, I, yeah, I didn't really get anything from watching that. It was just relentlessly bleak, which is kind of what it's supposed to be. It, you know, it has a strong message, but it, it's, yeah, yeah. I think probably... I'm I'm better if it's if it's more fantastical horror scariness, but yeah. So I suppose that's almost all I wanted to say. Really, I just kind of wanted to 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 to, put, to talk about my history with scary things and and how um, when I've heard people talk about being horror fans, they talk about oh you know when I was ten I managed to slip in, slip into a cinema and see Friday the Thirteenth or my big brother had a copy of this. I mean my brother. Um, I don't know how much horror he watches now, but he would have watched a lot of horror when he was probably too young to because he'd sneak and find my... Particularly when I went to university, he would have sneaked and found my, my, my videos and probably watched them when my parents weren't around. So that's, you know, that is a kind of quite a typical experience, I think, when I, I hear people talking about being fans of horror, is that somebody, I you know, maybe friends had a video and they went around to the... I didn't really have any friends with scary movies who... Uh, if anything, I was the f- the friend who maybe brought round um, a scary movie t- to Nick's house. Or, but by then we were much older anyway. We weren't kids. But I just thought, um, as, as sort of partially, um, the theme of this episode was is sort of Halloween, or at least it's coming out around the time of Halloween. I, I thought that um, rather than pick one TV show, um, most of the shows that um, scared me, I, I have spoken about in one form or another. Yeah, and to pick one of them, it, it yeah. Uh, I just thought that uh, that I would share with you, sort of, <laughs> how watching things like Doctor Who and Sapphire and Steel or um, or Incredible Hulk, uh, Day of the Triffids, any sort of uh, show like that that uh, scares you as a child, um, it, it doesn't necessarily put you off um, becoming a, a bigger horror fan, and uh, yeah. So it was my entry drug, my, my gateway drug to uh, scarier things and sillier, <laughs> badly dubbed things. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of uh, forever uh, grateful that... Uh, and it's not to say that I don't still want to watch those. You know, some days I don't want to watch uh, Dario Argento film or Friday the 13th or, um, or, or something. Oh, well, I suppose I don't really think of those as being the most scary, scary films out there. They're, they're you know, they're, they're a nice scare. You know, a Halloween scare or whatever. But sometimes you just want to watch um, a scary Doctor Who, Image of the Fendal or something. That's pretty scary, Deals. Uh, Deals is sitting here listening. He's still here. He's listening. Um, Deals, Deals is quite a TV watcher, aren't you, Deals? You like scary things? You watch scary things? Yeah? Yeah. I suppose before I do finish, I really ought to mention uh, some TV that I found scary as a child, which is the 
closest thing that I would say, uh, you know, is as scary still to me now as if I was watching, you know, a horror film made for an older audience. And the thing that I, I watch now, and it still gives me chills, would be episode one of Earthshock, Doctor Who. Um, because when that went out in March 1982, I was uh, eight. Um, actually, it came out about uh, a month or two before my brother was born. Uh, so I... I imagine I watched it by myself, and yeah, the scenes in the tunnels, with with the people running through the caves and the robots sort of following them, um, and then then particularly when um, they get blasted and you see their remains sort of bubbling around the floor. I mean, that's as scary as anything in any horror film that I watch. So, and um, yeah, when I watch it today, I I still get a shiver down my spine I still find it creepy and uh, very effective so in fact the whole story is full of moments that uh, obviously it's known for the ending and, um, and I know that everybody enjoys the Cyberman element of it but you know there were so many jump scares and spooky bits and creepy bits that um, it's probably the nearest we have to a, um, a Doctor Who horror film and uh, I guess those sort of jump scares and everything were very in vogue in 82, because 1981 is the big year of the slasher film. And although this isn't a slasher film, it, it could well have inspired Peter Grimwade, Fall I Know. Certainly there were a lot of scary films uh, at the cinemas in 81, as they would have been preparing Earthshock. But hmm, who knows? Anyway, still a favourite. Still gives me the creeps. Well, I think that's all, all I've got to say, really. Um... I'll uh, be back next time. I've got uh, an article about... Well, I can't tell you. But I've got an article um, recorded uh, with Mr Toppy Smelly uh, to share with you next time. So I will be back, as will Toppy, in November, hopefully. And, um, yeah, uh, it's definitely not scary. You won't be scared. In fact, you'll be laughing. Um, not necessarily at us, but at the topic that we're picking. But anyway, spoilers... Uh, I won't say any more, but yes, from horror to humour in for our next article, whenever that may be, hopefully next month, but we'll see. So, uh, right, okay, bye-bye for now, bye-bye from me, bye-bye from Dealey, handing back to Andrew and Lisa. Many thanks to Paul for that. Yes, thank you, Paul. And thank you, Dealey, for meowing if that was you. It might have been. I'm not sure. It might yes. have been the stunt cat. It might have been. Don't forget to check out the Shy Life podcast mm-hmm. done by Paul. Yes. Where there's lots of familiar voices. There is, yes. There'll be some more scary things later. Ooh. But now, Simon and Ken from the Exton Moss Experiment return to look at... Out of this world. The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton and we are invading around the archives. We are and today we have something, it's one of the BFI presentations, it's called Out of This World, which is the only surviving episode of an anthology series from the early 1960s. This one is called Little Lost Robot, Uh and it's the only surviving episode. 
this was a, a, a spin-off science fiction anthology series from um, Armchair Theatre. And while he was producer of Armchair Theatre, uh, Sidney Newman took a, um, a young, I think she was Canadian, science fiction fan called Irene Shubik on as an associate producer. And he was grooming her to become a, uh, a producer in her own right, which she did with, with this show. There was... Um, one episode called Dumb Martian that was part of the armchair theatre strand. And at the end of that, there was an advert saying, got a new show coming up for Saturday nights out of, out of this world. And this is the sort of thing that you're going to see. It was uh, fronted by Boris Karloff, who is unrecognisable from his monster roles. But from the one that we can see here, almost a slightly camp portrayal as, as your sort of classic, classic horror host in the sort of in the American tradition. There is only one full surviving episode, which is the third episode, Little Lost Robot, uh, transmitted on the 7th of July 1962. Although the two subsequent episodes, Cold Equations and Imposter, survive as, as audio recordings. Little Lost Robot was written by Isaac Asimov. The adaptation was by Leo Lehman and directed by Guy Verney. And it tells the story of um, one of Isaac Asimov's classic early robot stories. And his first robot protagonist was a robot psychologist by the name of Dr. Susan Calvin. And she is called up to this distant space station to deal with a problem with identifying a robot. And they have specialised robots there, one of whom has been told to get lost by an aggravated engineer, who it transpires is very anti-robot. The robot has taken this absolutely literally, and there is a consignment of 20 identical robots that is due to be shipped out to one of the other hyperspace bases. And this robot has hidden himself in amongst those other ones. So they have 21 robots, one of which is out of place. And the robot series of stories that established the classic laws of robotics, and the first one of which is that a robot cannot harm a human or through its own inaction allow a human to become harmed and this starbase engineer disagrees with that second statement so insisted that robots that work with him don't have the second statement put into them so they can through their inaction allow a human to be harmed and this is obviously a, a dangerous thing to happen susan kalman recognizes this immediately her tag along that you never really get a a feel on quite what the professional or personal relationship between them is, as approved the first law of robotics, can be adapted under these circumstances. They're about to send out to this dangerous environment a robot that could ignore the peril of a human. So they're, ve they're very, very concerned not to do that. So they, they bring so Susan Kalman up and she devises a series of tests to work out which one of these robots it is. And they put one of the station crew under a heavy weight and drop it down with the robots believing it's going to squash him. They all rush forward, including the, the one that's missing because he's worked out that that's what the other robots would do. They then put a robot deadly field in between and drop it and none of them move forward because they realise that there's, there is no point sacrificing themselves for something that's going to happen anyway. And with the final test, they tell the robots that there's going to be this uh, deadly destructive ray in between them and the person under the, the weight which for this final test is Susan Calvin herself. The robot that has been working on the station for the last several months is aware of the difference between a benign ray and a deadly one. The other robots aren't. So when they 
switch on a benign ray, none of the robots move forward apart from this one who is able to tell the difference. And so they've worked out that that's the one who has lost. And he starts going mad because he's basically been following his programming. He's done what he was told to do. He was told to get lost. He went and got lost on a space station. The best way to get lost was to hide himself in amongst other identical robots. And the engineer, who has been very anti-robot from the word go, and is the one that told him to get lost in the first place, comes along and starts hitting him and saying, you've caused us all these problems. The robot then strangles him. And so they witness the first murder of a human by a robot. The robot is then killed by the, the station security. And the, the 20 witnesses to that, who are the 20 robot witnesses to the first robot murder, go off to, uh, to their distance assignment. Like all of Asimov's stuff, it's a very clever story. I, well, I think I sent you a message after I'd been watching for about five or ten minutes saying how wonderful it was. Bear in mind, this is 1962, so very early science fiction. From an early point in the episode, they made mention of these 20 robots that are in the hold of this ship. And you think, well, 1962, they're never going to make 20 robot costumes. And they do. But the, the sets overall, that, that okay, there are... The whole thing is done on about three sets. Mm. And so there's, there's the commandant's office. There's a little um, office that they give uh, Susan Calvin. And then there's the the big set, which is the, the radiation room where they do all their robot testing. But that's a very intricate set. It's multi-level and um, all of the human technicians are, are at a sort of upper dais, upper set of stairs. There's this big um, cantilevered weight that drops down. I can't remember what they, they said it was there for in the first place, but it, no, it's being used to. Always, it felt a bit incongruous that they had this great big weight dropping machine. I couldn't actually figure out what it was for or why it was there. There was an explanation for it. I just can't remember what it is. I, th- I think it was a counterweight for a crane or something. Or something. But there was a, a reasonable explanation for why that, that counterweight was there. But they had a step dais for all the robots to, to stand on. And they all obviously had people in because they were moving ever so slightly. So it wasn't just they got a whole load of shop dummies and stuck these robot costumes on. I mean, possibly at the back they had. But certainly the first couple of rows were moving. The robot costumes themselves don't look great. No, but they're a bit ducky. But we're talking pre-Tribe of Gum. Yes, but they, they get the point across. They've all got sensorite feet. Yes, uh, without Susan laughing at them. But I, I was just impressed that they'd gone to that effort to, all right, it's a very primitive robot costume, but at least they have actually, they've not tried to done photo blow-ups in the background. There are 20 extras playing those robots. I'm, I'm impressed. Yeah. But the robot walk, whenever they walk, it is horribly wobbly. It is the archetypal, stiff-legged 1950s robot walk. The man playing the Admiral is sweating heavily under the studio lights. I don't know where this was filmed, but it must have been bloody hot, because he's in full regalia, and in every scene he seems to be drinking whiskey. It's um what I assume is an early outing for... Asimov's law, as it's come to be known, that a robot cannot harm or allow to be harmed a human being. I think this was the first, certainly British television adaptation of one of Asimov's robot stories. As I say, the, the early stories have has Susan Calvin as a, a primary protagonist. Sadly, none of the other adaptations from the 60s on British television survive. And the terrible shame is that one of the Out of the Unknown ones, The Prophet, had Susan Calvin played by Beatrix Lehman, so Amelia Rumford herself. And her sausage sandwiches. 
But yes, I'm not intimately familiar with Asimov. Does the Asimov's Law does that, which is never referred to on screen, of course, but. Well, it, it was never called on the books Asimov's Law. It was called the, uh, the Laws of Robotics, and Susan Calvin was actually the one who came up with them. Um, it's called Asimov's Law because he was the one that wrote the short stories that came up with it. But does it crop up in any of the other books? Oh, yes. Yeah, right the way through because it, it's a shared universe. Susan Calvin then goes on to, a few hundred years later, the robot detective stories of Elijah Bailey, which directly leads on to the Foundation trilogy. Well, actually, they became far more than a trilogy. And you assume that the great project they're talking about here is the beginnings of the Foundation Library. It's never never explicitly stated, but knowing the rest of the Asimov mythology. Again, I'm ashamed to say that I, I don't really know Asimov very well. And one of the things that surprised me, actually, was when they were doing the whole interviewing the robots thing, they were shown to have AI. It wasn't, they weren't just simple functionaries. Yeah, and there's a big thing about how Susan Kelvin is there because she's a psychologist, not because she's there as an engineer. Black, who is the engineer, who is was saying, I understand all the, the positronic stuff. I understand how the, these things work. And she's saying, yeah, but you don't understand how they think. Mm. And that's the important thing here. So she is there because she understands the psyche of the robots rather than she understands the engineering of it. Now, it, there are some odd bits in the plot from uh, looking at it from a, a more modern lens. So it's very odd that they spend three months sending this incredibly eminent scientist who has never been off world, world before to the this obscure station in in Saturn, when it would have been an awful lot more effective just to send the 21 robots back for her to deal with on Earth. Maybe she wanted a jaunt as well. Well, No, because she starts off right at the beginning saying, I've never been off Earth and I've never wanted to because my life's in a laboratory. A bluff. She just wanted a freebie. There is a a bit towards the end where they realise they're being watched by the robot and it runs back to the the radiation hall where they're they're all being held. Realistically, in in this day and age, and that... This is supposed to be set about 2040. But realistically, there would be cameras everywhere and you would very quickly learn which of the robots it was that was running along. But actually, all you would do is change the plot slightly to say that the, the robot has tapped into the camera feed and has worked out the conversation they were having about how to work out who it was. Oh, yeah. The other thing is they're, they're saying that they don't know which robot is which, but then each robot is introduced by a number. So it's sort of, um, we don't know which of these robots is, is one. Could it be seven? Could it be 15 or whatever? So you kind of assume that those numbers have been designated after the event. That was my reading of the situation as well, yeah. All in all, I thought that was a, a, a wonderful piece of television. Yeah, we can pick it apart with 21st century eyes till the cows come home. But the fact of the matter is, that was a really nice bit of television. And I must shout out to the BFI, who, whenever they present these things on DVD, they are always lovingly done. If you've got the letters BFI on anything, you know that it's going to be restored and presented lovingly. The booklet with this thing, it's about 20 pages thick, and it's in real depth about the whole series, written with love. The print on the DVD is not only the original 405 line print, cleaned up, but still 405 line. They've also deinterlaced it and vidfired it so that you get an even better print. Plus, there is the audio of the two Survivor episodes. It's a really nicely presented thing, considering it's only one episode. It's beautifully done. Yeah, and actually, the the audio of the... Or, or the first audio, the, the cold equations, is worth talking about because 
Imposter, the second one, it's all about an alien who's pretending to be a human, or is it a human who's pretending to be an alien pretending to be a human, or uh, an alien who doesn't realise that he's pretending to be human? And it, it's the whole Philip K. Dick mindfuck thing. Um, <laughs> but it would be very visual, and it do, that doesn't come across massively well on the audio. But the audio of the cold equations is just absolutely wonderful, and it, it makes it realise just what a, a gem is missing. The story is about a supply pilot who is traveling to a remote outpost planet. And there is a stowaway on board who wants to travel to see her brother who's on the the planet. The problem is that all the energy requirements have been very carefully tailored to just one person and the cargo. And the cargo is all sealed away. So they can't jettison some of the cargo. One of the the two people on board, the pilot and or the the stewardess, has to be jettisoned to be able to manage a safe landing. The stowaway would not be able to to land the ship, so she has to she has to jettison herself. And it's absolutely beautifully done. It's basically a two hander between Jane Asher and Peter Wingard. It's quite a heartbreaking performance. I suspect that if this survived. It would be an absolute classic. I know you had had a listen to it. What did what did you think? Well, unfortunately, this was done after a very long day, and I fell asleep after about ten minutes. So I can't really give a an appraisal of the of the episode itself. All I will say is the audio is nicely cleaned up. It's not some crackly old reel to reel. They presented it as best they can. So I don't know is the honest answer, but you have recommended it, and I will be look, uh, will be listening to it. Yeah, it, it's well worth a listen. And we we are doing doing these episodes kind of as a, a very quick throw together because we're in the middle of the coronavirus stay at home drama, and I'm actually fairly limited because I mean, as a hospital doctor, I'm not staying at home. I'm going into work, and I'm working on a, a, a COVID ward, and I'm doing long shifts, so I'm fairly limited in terms of what time I have available to do these recordings. And if we hadn't done this now, then it would have been over a week before we could do the next one. I'm gasping here. Should we get the tonic screwdriver out? Indeed we should. Tonight's offering is House of Botanicals Maple Old Tom Gin. It's a 47% gin, so it's quite strong. And the info bollocks... It's a buttery mouthfeel with bright fresh notes of juniper and prime predominant, balanced with warm orange citrus, vanilla, chamomile with an H, and subtle hints of maple on the finish. How else do you spell chamomile? I mainly see it without the H. Yeah, but lots of people spell things wrong. I shall let that one slide. Serve with ice and mix at a maximum two to one with fever tree ginger ale again, and yes, garnish no. with a wedge of pink grapefruit. We don't really yes. do that. We, we, we just do ice We don't wreck gins with ginger ale. Um, and it says that the botanicals are juniper, angelica, oris, coriander, orange, lemon, cassia, almond, saffron, chamomile, ginger, and maple. I was really, I had high hopes for this one. 47%. Uh, when they get that strong, they're usually pretty good. This one. I'm and maple, I was expecting something nice and sweet, which it isn't. It's got a lovely taste of fur about it. That that really hits you in the hindbrain the moment you take it. There, there are real nice undercurrents of saffron as well. And saffron as an ingredient in gin is usually very overpowering or pretty much you can't taste it. Whereas this just gets a really nice balance. So you, I, you can taste it, but it doesn't overpower anything. I'm getting bugger all from this. I'm really unimpressed. No, I, it's a four from me because I think this is very nice. No, now you see, 
it's a two from me because I'm not getting, there's no smell hitting me when I put the glass to my lips. I'm not really getting much in the way of taste. Uh, I mean, there's only a dash of tonic in this. Yeah, but there's probably about half an iceberg full of ice. There's a couple of cubes, with a couple of tardises of ice. You have, you have never made a gin and tonic with only a couple of cubes in in your life. For the tasters, I only put a couple of cubes in. No, I'm massively disappointed with, with, Which with this. Which one's about half a ton? Well, I can't get the wagons. They're not delivering during lockdown. So I'm having to make do with a couple of cubes like everybody else. Anyway, pick up your glass. I shall descend with Spaff into the Black Archive. You get your hologram projector out and join me virtually. Oh, is that what this is? I just assumed it was some weirdness that Spaff had sent me. And frankly, after the last one, I'm a little not inclined to switch it on. On the subject of that, what do you have to say for yourself, Spaff, about that? You know what you've done. I shall destroy you if you defy me again. Oh, cheeky. Not sure that's called for. Perhaps leave him upstairs. Go on, off you go. Then don't be rude. On the theme of sort of robotics and Asimov and that sort of thing, I'm going to rescue the bits of tomorrow's world that are missing. Now, in terms of archive survivability, it's not that bad. Um, a lot of the film inserts from the 60s do still survive, but I believe quite a few of the links and the in-studio material, because they were transmitted live at the time, they haven't survived. So in terms of missing material, there's not an awful lot, but it's it's gone and it's worth having back. Uh, Tomorrow's World, for those who aren't familiar, it was a, a science of the future program on the BBC, and it ran for decades. It was from the 60s through to the 90s, typical Friday night viewing, and it was gadgets of the future, which now you look at them, there were a lot of them were way, way off the mark, but a lot of them were surprisingly accurate as well, years in advance of when they came on the market. I used to enjoy watching Tomorrow's World. It was Judith Han, wasn't it, and Michael... Take your pick. There was Howard Stapleford, Howard Stapleford even. I was thinking of glory days when I used to watch it um, I'm just trying to think I was early 80s when I watched it mainly I you see it was on just after Top of the Pops in the 70s so I, I used to watch it then I remember Maggie Philbin Michael Rudd oh that was just before I started watching it was uh, Peter McCann he was the one I remember with Judith Han. Maggie Philbin Maggie Philbin was in it yes that was sort of my era for watching it. Uh, I didn't really watch it in the 90s, apart from one episode in 1993 where the TARDIS was in it. Geek. Yeah, might be. Guilty as charged. What's your rescue for this week? Zipping forward a, a little bit, but still science fiction. ITV series called The Adventures of Don Quick. It was a science fiction retelling of Don Quixote with Ian Hendry as Don Quick and Sam Kelly as his subordinate, who yes. is Sam Panza. You talk to people, they have very, very fond memories of it. The first episode does survive. I've never seen it, and I would quite love to. Hello, network. But it would just be really nice to, to see the rest of it. And if all of it survived, we would stand a higher chance of getting a, net, a network release, which would be lovely. So with that, we will turn off this thing that Spaff has sent me and return you to the very capable hands of Andy and Lisa. Thanks for having us, guys. See you later. Bye now. Many thanks to Simon and Ken for yes, doing that. thank you, boys. Another excellent article.
Uh, people with sharp ears may have noticed that that article did appear on the Exomos experiment before it appeared on Round the Archives. It did, yes. But that's just part of our Round the Archives victorious project, it isn't is, it? Where yes. you can hear us in all sorts of places, sometimes yes. before and sometimes after. Yes. But now, here's the return of Martin Holmes to look at more... Scary things. <laughs> As it's the season for spooks and ghouls to go roaming again, and also because I was asked, I've been giving some thought to this small matter of the television that scared me when I was younger. And, rather surprisingly, it's not quite as straightforward a question as you might think. After all, these days I am a rather impressionable soul, and, quite frankly, pretty much everything about the modern world can terrify me once I start to think about it, but back then I can't really remember all that much absolutely horrifying me in quite the same way that it seems to have bothered some people. I'm sure that, if they were still alive and not holding up the patio, my parents would disagree and recollect nights of screaming and howling and bedwetting heebie-jeebies, but thankfully that's all well buried now. Deep in the subconscious, of course, and not under the rhododendron bushes. There were, of course, those occasional moments that made me shudder, that we all share, like being freaked out by that bloody hooded figure by the dark and lonely water. But because the memory is sometimes merciful, I don't really remember having any nightmares that kept me awake, and so terrified of closing my eyes that I began to see and hear monsters and psychopaths in every shadow and creak as the alarm clock ticked its radioactive way towards another grateful dawn. That all came later. You see, the two films that I saw on television that most terrified me and had me leaving the lights on and wondering just what that creak I heard on the stairs might be or whether the knife-wielding maniac was behind that door and cautiously creeping about the house checking just in case were both watched when I was the kind of grown-up who really ought to have known better. The first of these was the version of Ten Rillington Place that starred lovely, cuddly old Dickie Attenborough as real-life serial killer Reginald Halliday Christie, which I think got to me precisely because it told a story of a real-world horror and perhaps because it involved a terrible injustice that led me to seek out Ludovic Kennedy's book, which quite obviously disturbed me even more. I saw that film very late at night on the black-and-white portable set that I had in my bedroom, and whilst I'm now very glad that I did watch it, on that particular night I really wished that I hadn't, if you see what I mean. There's something about that quiet, menacing voice that Attenborough uses that still disturbs me whenever I see that one. But I also think that this particular subject matter where people can be so cruel to each other says a lot more about the kind of stuff that I find far more terrifying than all the shockers and jump scares in the so-called horror stories ever could. The other was Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which I taped off Channel 4 one night and then watched alone in my flat on another weekend early evening just as the twilight failed and the shadows thickened, and was an experience which disturbed me so much that I genuinely lay awake for hours, and despite my dire financial straits at that time, kept the light burning brightly enough so that nobody, I believed, although it's clearly nonsense, could sneak up on me unawares. I'm sure that died-in-the-wall horror film fans would find both of those examples decidedly tame, but they both got inside my head, which is, I suppose, what good horror does. After all, despite the fact that they can appear laughable to the modern viewer, all of those universal horrors of the 1930s and 1940s were probably just as shocking to some of their audiences when they were first released into an unsuspecting world. Oh, I do miss those late-night double bills that used to turn up on the weekends when I was at an impressionable age. 
There was something about the shared experience of them, or even the anticipation of them, too, when discussed in the playground during the week, that downloads and streaming doesn't quite manage to capture anymore. And when it comes to other late-night horror films that still resonate, whilst there are still several well-known reasons to find much to enjoy in The Wicker Man, that final cruel fate is still deeply, deeply disturbing and sets in mind a train of thought that haunts you. Of course, we are more concerned with television in this dark and spooky corner of the internet, and whilst those films being on television is precisely why I got to see and be disturbed by them, it is our memories of small screen terrors to which I ought to be turning my red-eyed evil gaze. That said, I think these days I'm actually more bothered by the idea of being frightened than the fear itself. I'm still looking at that unopened copy of Nigel Neal's version of The Woman in Black and thinking, maybe another day, because I've been told it's terrifying and I'm no longer all that fond of being terrified no matter how much I admire the writer's work. And also because, to be fair, the stage show has already deeply disturbed me on two separate occasions that were, thankfully, diluted by the journey home from those theatres, even though each time that particular version has triggered dark thoughts, just as I've been trying my best to get off to a fitful slumber. Much the same can be said for that very pricey Ghost Stories for Christmas set that has stayed safely wrapped up in its cellophane skin for several Christmases now because I know that both Whistle and I'll Come to You and The Signalman will bother me on a deeply disturbing psychological level. Fear of the fear. It's strange that I have this and that it's getting worse. Especially as some of the reasons often given for why such stories are so popular is that so many of us quite enjoy being frightened, apparently. We still hang on to the recordings and watch the more recent ghost stories on a bright summer afternoon at the height of summer, you know. To be honest, I've become far more susceptible to such worries the older I've got, and I've become less tolerant of the cruelty to other people that used to be all the rage in those horror films that other people seemed to find so appealing when I was hiding under the cushions. That said, the famously banned Evil Dead 2 bothered me far less than walking home in a rainstorm after watching The Omen and my friend James leaping out at us in the car park after going to see Jagged Edge terrified me far more than any of those late-night double bills that used to keep us looking for thrills on BBC Two. Thinking about it, however, the fall of the House of Usher did disturb me, though. I think it was those scratch marks on the coffin lid that did it. Or maybe it was just those pointed silences that racked up the tension to the point where you either just couldn't bear the suspense or you dozed off after one too many pints on a Saturday night out. Because, for me at least, these films were either a shared experience after a trip to the pub via the video rental shop or a lonely experience on a late-night flickering screen. Funnily enough, one of the television horrors that I remember quite shaking me up was from the otherwise quite ridiculous vaults of the Hammer House of Horror. For me it was the one called The House That Bled to Death featuring Nicholas Ball and who was quite a big name at that time, 1980, after his starring role in the popular Hazel TV series. The director Tom Clegg and writer David Lloyd would no doubt be delighted to discover that their shock ending did indeed shock this particular viewer to the very core on its original transmission. I think I've had a deep mistrust of the sudden appearance of bloody great big knives ever since. And, given that I've become such a wuss, the older me probably wouldn't even tune in to such a thing these days, although we did rattle through Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House earlier in the year. And that did have its moments. And as for the younger me, well, I'm still not convinced he was all that bothered by anything very much. Either that or I simply wasn't drawn to that kind of television. You see, I'm absolutely certain that I remember watching The Children of the Stones on first transmission, but the theme tune doesn't trigger quite the same disturbed reaction as it seems to have with some other viewers. Equally, I do remember being quite gripped by the Changes ten-part serial, 
and seeing it right through to the end. But my abiding memory is of what a waste of television sets the opening episodes featured, which probably says more about how much I wanted my own TV set than anything much else. Perhaps oddly, one of the children's serials that did disturb me was the adaptation of Alan Garner's The Owl Service, which had a, such a freakish opening sequence coupled with a disturbing soundtrack largely made up of edgy sound effects that it took me until a Sunday morning repeat several decades later before I could finally summon up the nerve to watch the thing. Interesting that, I suppose, that ordinary sound can be so much more chilling than you might expect. It's a little bit like that opening to Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons in which the footsteps stalking their way along a dark street late at night was the thing that most disturbed me and stuck with me long after those haunting Mistron voices had done their macabre thing. I'm certainly no fan of hearing footsteps following me on a dark night even to this day, but then I suppose that few of us would be really. Perhaps that's a secret really. Making the ordinary and everyday seem sinister and disturbing is precisely what it takes to frighten the whatnots out of us. Does a series like Tales of the Unexpected or The Frighteners frighten us less simply because there is a clue in the title? Does a ghost story for Christmas actually make our skin crawl less because we know that it is a ghost story before we've seen one frame? Are the more disturbing things that lock into our fevered imaginations those ordinary things like public information films that just popped up unannounced, hiding in plain sight amidst the adverts for fizzy pop LP? records and Christmas must have toys. Certainly one of the things that made Doctor Who so compelling for us kids was that idea of monsters from outer space lurking, as the great man once so eloquently put it, on our loo in Tooting Beck. Suddenly our own adventures, down by whichever local waste ground we used to play on, suddenly had the air of possible excitement and danger when the alien menace might have been lurking beneath the ground waiting for the next young tearaway to come along and be offered whatever form of dubious immortality was being offered that week. It must have helped that within such tales it was often those dubious bullies that might otherwise have been making our real lives hell that tended to suffer the consequences of playing on the wrong side of such tracks. Being a Doctor Who fan from such an early age ought to have given me my fair share of shocks to sear themselves into the subconscious, but none of them really stick in my mind as having done so. I think I simply enjoyed the show too much to be frightened by it, or, if I was frightened, I was more fascinated by that continuing unfolding text, enough that Sutek bringing the gift of death to all humanity, or a servant of the master holding our hero's head underwater, certainly caused me little in the way of sleepless nights, I seem to recall. Although, yes, I definitely do remember Joe Grant being stalked by that lethal giant maggot while she was sitting there oblivious to the fact that it was coming closer and closer and closer. Now, that was disturbing. But when you think about it, I would have been just that couple of years younger then, and mm, let's be honest, I'm still more than freaked out by maggots and similar creepy crawlies to this day. It's probably why I never saw any appeal in taking up fishing. My dad, of course, used to have this theory that he needed to protect me from possible nightmares that might be caused by things that I might have seen on the television. So, for example, if we were watching Spartacus and there was a particularly gruesome and bloody death coming up, I would be sent out of the living room to wait in our chilly hallway until I got the all clear. And this happened every time he thought something might be about to appear on TV that might disturb me. Somehow I got to associate that vast mirror we had on that end wall above that tiny gas heater with all sorts of unpleasantness. And this, for some reason that still escapes me, is why I got to see the final scenes of Planet of the Spiders through the open door of the living room from a safe spot looking through the banister rail from near the top of the stairs. Odd that. All the bloody great spiders, no problem. But the big farewell, the death scene of my television hero, and I was banished outside just far enough for me to be convinced that Tom Baker was actually the puppet Lord Charles, complete with monocle. Emotions, you see. Farewells. Difficult things. Obviously my father knew me too well. 
Weirdly, of course, with both my parents and my sister all out at work, I spent a lot of my school holidays watching the television instead of going out and playing football or whatever it was the other children my age were supposed to get up to. Christmas holidays featured the milder thrills of Flash Gordon and holiday Star Trek in the wintertime and all manner of unsupervised television action throughout those long summer mornings. But the thing is, once the lunchtime children's entertainments were done and dusted, I'd stick around and watch all manner of those grown-up dramas that filled summer afternoon schedules, and so I was probably exposed to far more of those banishment worthy moments that my father might have realised. A visual diet, of course, that probably explains why I'm doing exactly this sort of thing today. Oddly enough, however, I think I was an unusual child in that real-world events were actually more likely to disturb and haunt me. And because he would sit and watch the news every evening without ever feeling the need to banish me from the room for that, perhaps he didn't know me that well at all, after all. When I was at an impressionable age, you see, there were lots of major air crashes all over the news and every bulletin seemed to be full of burnt, twisted metal debris and scattered suitcases on strips of tarmac and hillsides and that sense of fear of flying that everything that was you could be stopped simply because your parents decided to take you off on a foreign holiday was one of the most disturbing ideas that I can remember picking up as a child. So my parents would book a holiday and, although possibly they never knew this, I would spend the subsequent three or four months convinced that I was approaching my end and the relief of safely arriving at some foreign hotel resort would immediately find me fretting about the return journey two weeks later. Such a fun and well-adjusted child I must have been. It didn't help that my mother was an avid holiday maker as she was a nervous flyer and such things are infectious I suppose. We subconsciously pick up on the things that frighten our parents, don't we? But I guess that's as true about our television choices as anything. If there's a nervous tension in the room we sense it and it feeds into our own responses to the stories unfolding on the screen. There was some sense of comfort in turning away from the screen and finding the normality of armchairs or beef burgers and chips still there, just as they always were, as the terrors unfolded on the TV. Equally, if the rubber monster is seen as being hilarious by the others watching with us, then we find them less terrifying too. This possibly explains why we allegedly grow out of programmes like Doctor Who, because others around us started to find such things childish and silly, and as we all want to be accepted by our peer group, we would pretend to as well, and feign an interest in grown-up acceptable things like football and beer. That said, my big sister may have grown out of Doctor Who, but she still borrowed my Target books to read. And let's be honest, a great many of those people who might have at least pretended to grow out of such things, ended up adoring it with their own children a generation later on. Personally, I think a lot of us look back with a kind of fondness to those childhood scares, and we feel a kind of nostalgic glow for those moments of family bonding through the comparatively mild scares and release of tension we got from watching them all together. Uh, I still get convinced of my imminent impending doom every time I fly, by the way. Interestingly, this same sense of superstitious doom meant that I never completed reading Doctor Who and the Crusaders, which was bought for me at the time of its first publication by my Auntie Bessie when she was visiting us. For some reason, I got it into my head that I would be in mortal peril if ever I finished it, which meant that decades later, when I finally played the audiobook version, I still got a little bit twitchy about whether to let it play on. But despite all the efforts the programme makers were making in trying to terrify us, whether deliberately or accidentally, after all the things that some people claim freaked them out were probably intended to be quite benign and even friendly, for me it was the news stories that continue to haunt me after dark. Names like Moorgate and Summerland and Piper Alpha still resonate with me when I think back to the things that concerned and bothered me back then, and I know that at least some of them seeped into my playtimes too. The drawings I drew to try and comprehend the compression of that first carriage down to 13 feet at Moorgate. The bonfire that consumed my toy garage, which disappeared in some reenactment of Summerland. The toy cars that got mangled as I tried to come to terms with the latest motorway pile-up. 
All these things were fed by the news monster and those tragic stories remain just as vivid in my memories now as the Cybermen finally arriving at Nerva Beacon and mercilessly gunning down our heroes before the credits rolled. And then there were those documentaries because when it comes to outright horror that takes deep root in a young mind then it's going to take something like the world at war to plant it. You see, having been there, my father took a lot of interest in the Second World War. For many years, there was a great big leather-bound set of a partwork magazine he collected called The War Illustrated that sat on one of the bookshelves, which I would occasionally browse through. But that interest meant that he would always sit down and watch a war film if one was on. For my sister, it was cowboy, chiefly for the horses, I suspect. But with my dad, it was a war film. And quite naturally, the rest of us would watch it too, even though I'd occasionally be staring at my own reflection in that chilly hallway when things got too desperate. But this means that when the world at war was on, he'd have been there, glued to his seat every week. And to be honest, even if most of it was edited to make it less horrific for domestic consumption, there's one episode, the genocide one about the Holocaust, that no amount of editing could remove the horror from. And that's that's perfectly acceptable, because, I, and I mean this sincerely, I still believe that being exposed to such horrors at a young and impressionable age was probably a good thing for me. And I genuinely believe that occasional reminders of the terrible things that human beings can do to each other is possibly the best way to prevent them from happening again. Cruelty, you see, still bothers me. Perhaps that's the real problem. I've become far more bothered by the idea of humanity's ability to be cruel to other human beings, the notion of torture and cruelty, and the horrible possibility that I might actually be put in such a position one awful day if the human beings around here start to display a lot of the horrible tendencies that other human beings have done to each other throughout history. Such programmes, full of such terrible images as they are, did at least get us thinking and talking, and certainly didn't prompt any playtime reenactments. And with the way the world seems to be changing these days, I can't help but think that being shown such things not to glorify them and learning just how wrong they are might not be the worst thing to be doing. But these things are not shown anymore. Perhaps we've decided that young minds are too impressionable and in protecting them we start to suggest that these real life horrors are just myths and legends like the werewolves in those late night horror movies or the common sense we all have. The same common sense that meant that those terrifying public information films disappeared and people started to wear black outfits on dark country lanes or started to drown in reservoirs all over again. Nowadays, my own fears are very different and are often brought to vivid life every time I switch on the television news, the actions of the unthinking mob or the ignorant thug or, or just the thought of someone unexpected being there in the room when I wake up bothers me, as does the idea of being the person seen to fail or perhaps even being a person who's seen at all. You might be surprised, given all this audio nonsense I've been doing, but I'm still intimidated if someone is in the room watching me do it and I clam up. Obviously, when my copy of Scarred for Life turns up, I'll be reminded of a hell of a lot more of the things that once bothered me, but for now I'm prepared to believe that it was the real-world horrors as seen on TV that shaped me and stuck with me. That and that two-foot-long maggot making its way across the floor to where Joe Grant is sitting. <laughs> Many thanks to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. He's a busy boy at the he moment, isn't he? He's a busy he? boy. Not only is he doing stuff for us and stuff for Paul and an A to Z of UK TV drama, yeah. he's also got his own show. Yes. So this is Vision on Sound. Yes, on Fab Radio on a Sunday night at 7pm. It can also be listened on their um, media player afterwards. As a podcast version. As a podcast version. But with less music. But with less music. If you want to listen, to, you want to hear the uncut thing, you have to listen on a Sunday evening. You, you ha- actually have to be in front of your your your, your, your wireless or your, your radiogram, radiogram yes. at seven o'clock. Yes. 
with your cat's whisker. Yes. Or something like that. Yeah. Whatever. But that's the episode nearly wrapped up. Yes. But we will do an A to Z because yeah. we started with the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to look at Frank Windsor in... Zed Cars. In 50 minutes, Larry Grayson's Generation Game, a special edition featuring highlights from the last series. First on BBC One, an early episode of the series which 20 years ago set a new style in television police drama. Leslie Sands, Stratford Johns and Frank Windsor are among the cast of Zed Cars. Good afternoon, Lisa. Good afternoon, Andrew. We've had a right old session of Zed Curls, we haven't have. we? Well, took two episodes to be precise. An Is after- that a session? I think so. An afternoon okay. devoted to Zed Curls yeah. and to Frank Windsor. Yes. Because that's what we wanted to do. Yes. Now, Zed Curls, of course, suffers from the problem that not all of it is available by any yeah. means. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you've got missing episodes. Yes. But what we were looking at was two episodes from series three which survives quite well actually i didn't mm-hmm. realize how well um that one does survive okay um but we're doing uh hide and go seek yes. from the 16th of october 1963 mm-hmm. and happy families from the 18th of march 1964 mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that one got repeated quite a lot yes uh, as i yes. understand mm-hmm. but let, let's just look at the the genome listings mm-hmm. for them so they're both on round about sort of eight o'clock uh of a wednesday evening mm-hmm. so hide and go seek Mm-hmm. Um, by John Hopkins, mm-hmm. directed by Sean Sutton, mm-hmm. as is the other episode. I hadn't realised yes. that connection. Yeah, it's getting to be a bit silly now. We're repeating directors and, yeah, writers. and writers. Yes, yeah. but um, it, it always says that there are two young constables in each car ready to deal with trouble as it happens, mm-hmm. which implies that it, it's all about the young constables, but it's not. This one's not, no. 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 So the carefully laid plans of the police are betrayed to the press and Superintendent Miller wants to know if one of Barlow's men was responsible. Mm-hmm. And I think this one is, is known as the John Thor episode, yes. really, isn't uh, it? Well, yeah, apparently he'd been in it for a few episodes, yeah. but it's for the purpose of this episode, mm. this edition, if you want, yeah. um, because it's a culmination of a story. Yeah. So, uh, ironic that, you know, he yeah. goes on to play so many police parts well, after this yeah well at least three more because he's in red cap yeah obviously the sweeney yeah and morse of course yeah and morse of course and weirdly happy families has got a mention of a character called lewis yes that you never see no and i hadn't i hadn't clocked that one mm. but for happy families mm-hmm. complaints made to the police are strange and diverse when the mother of a 10 year old boy complains that her son is in possession of certain photographs Barlow hasn't very far to search for the source. Okay. Didn't they say he was eight in the episode? Possibly. Yeah. Well, I, I, I sort of lose track of the boys because there's yeah, several there's, boys, there's isn't boys. it? Yeah. Yes, one of which is uh, Roy Holder. Roy Holder, yeah. Who's only just a teenager at this point. <laughs> yeah. But Joss Acton's the sort of main guest star yes. for that. But Hide and Go Seek, you've got quite a few famous faces yeah. popping up, haven't you? Yes. Because you've got Jack Smethurst yes. there. Yes. 
And uh, who's the editor of the newspaper? Paul Whitson. Paul Whitson Jones. Jones. Yeah. 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 So yeah, some some mm. good some good people in there, and a very young Richard Carpenter as yes, well. Yes, when he was still an actor, not a writer. Yeah. 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 But what do you think of what in these episodes? Because that's what we should. Yes, that's what we should concentrate on. We're not doing a full breakdown of the episodes. Episode. No, we looked at these because they're interesting ones for John Watt. Yeah. Hide and go seek. He's a bit in the background. Yeah. But he is there. He's got a couple of good scenes. He's got a good scene in the pub with um, Sergeant Blackett, mm-hmm. who is one of my favourite characters. Yeah. And yeah, it's. Happy Families is Maurice's episode, yeah. I think. Well, I think it's interesting because these work very well as a pair. They do. You know what I said yeah. about how series and serials, yeah. that the events of one episode inevitably feed into the character yes. of later ones. Mm-hmm. So the thing about John Thor's character yeah. is that he's having difficulty coping mm-hmm. with the job because yeah. of all the drinking that's yes. involved. He, he hasn't it? got a head for drink. Yeah. And if you were to play a drinking game whilst watching this episode, mm. you know, yeah, you, you wouldn't last very long, no. I don't think. No. Um, whereas in the second episode, Watt's having home life problems yes. of his own, yes. isn't he? And I've just looked at, because obviously Happy Families is March, mm. and there's a reference to Christmas in that, yeah. because Watt's wife has left him yeah. at Christmas, yeah. and then she comes back and she tells him why she's left. And I looked, and the actress that played his wife was in the day, episode that was on Christmas Day. All right. So, so what's, what's so, that one then? Let's um, have a look. It's all right. I, I, I can look I it up. I can't what it's called now, but. Uh, uh, it Never Rains, yeah. 25th of December, 63. I mean, I was looking on IMDb, so there's no plot details on there. No. But, uh, I, d- I don't know the episode at all. But no. yeah, so but this just feeds through. And it's it's just interesting that you've you've got the fact that they spend a lot of time in the pub, yeah, in um, hide and go seek, talking to informants yeah. or trying to talk to informants because none of them want to talk to them, or just talking between themselves. Yeah. And then you get the the fact that at home mm. their wife is waiting for them to yeah. go home, and they're always late home, and they're always half. Drunk, yeah, yeah, because there um, is the line in Happy yeah. Families, you know, always, always half drunk. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it is consistent across yes. these two episodes. Yeah. And it's really weird because in Happy Families, I don't know whether you're meant to find his wife sympathetic or not. Mm. Because, obviously, you know, it's probably a really rubbish life spending your whole time waiting for someone to get home yeah. and then never being on time they say they're going to be home but you don't really find her that sympathetic she doesn't come across as that sympathetic a character but let's talk about the Watt and Barlow relationship yes I mean they are like an old married couple in a way aren't they so yeah and of course you know this this goes on for years and years oh gosh yes because you get this you get softly softly you get softly softly task force you get Jack the Ripper you get a second verdict I don't think he's in Barlow at Large at all. I don't know. But Barlow at Large is before, though. But we, we should say st- Second Verdict now becomes the obvious thing to release, doesn't yes, it? Yes, please release N- Now we Now we've finally got Jack the Ripper. Yes, which is glorious. If you've not bought Jack the Ripper yeah. and you have any interest at all in Zed Cars, Frank Windsor or Stratford Johns, or indeed... Um, Christopher Benjamin, yeah. who pops up in an episode playing a slightly low-key uh, version of Henry Gordon Jago. Yeah. 
buy it because it's a great series. But it's just them two in a room with yeah. a with a, a board and a squeaky pen. A squeaky pen, pen yeah. and a bit of reconstruction. Yeah. And you don't have to be interested in but Jack the Ripper. But there's all this history from the 60s episodes yeah. that feeds into their relationship. Yeah. And the more I see of these 60s episodes, yeah. just the deeper and more interesting mm-hmm. that that becomes because obviously you know the two it's in the heads of the two actors all yes. the time all the stuff they've done together yeah. and it, it is it is just fantastic how how sort of rich a soup it is yes. isn't it you know yeah. that it, it's not just one episode sits on its own no that one episode you know has does have the consequences mm-hmm. that i complain that the avengers perhaps doesn't no you know no. in 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 such such a different way and weirdly there is a link to the avengers in happy families yeah because the actress that plays um one uh, well, an actress that plays one of the characters in it yeah who is in the pictures of a certain kind yeah mucky pictures in other words was married to patrick McNee. yeah so all right. it all links together in one I haven't weird honestly planned any of this. Incestuous thing. Yeah, that's, that's really weird, isn't yeah. it? But you, you said Frank Windsor to you is not necessarily Zed Cars, no, is it? No, I, I don't think I would have seen him in Zed Cars probably mm. until I got to know you. I don't yeah. think I saw any Zed Cars until I got to know you because I don't think I ever saw any repeats of, on the rare occasions it was shown again on BBC One. So we were like sitting about one day and I, I said, oh, you better have a look at me Z cars, love. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, obviously I knew Frank Linzer from being in um, The King's Demons yeah. and um, Ghost Light. Yeah. But I'd also seen him and I've tried to look for it and there were a few clips of um, Flying Lady, it's called. It's an ITV series from the late 80s or early 90s. Mm. Uh, he plays somebody who's he's retired or he's made redundant and he uses his redundancy money to buy a Rolls Royce. Okay. It's one of those weird series that... Um, Not ringing many bells with me, I'm and he was yeah. It was only one series and he was in that. He, he's the lead in that with um, Anne Stalibras. Okay. So I would have seen him in that. Obviously, I probably saw him in loads of adverts on ITV because he was always doing adverts for pensions and <laughs> um, things. So, yeah. so yeah, that's... It, it, Frank Windsor didn't mean Zed Cars no, to me. No, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm just looking at these lists of what does survive, hmm. and it's a great shame that like yeah. Britbox or something because we we've just we've just dipped our toe into Britbox, we have. haven't we? Yes, and there, there's certainly a decent range of stuff yeah. on there. Yeah, I mean, I I, I mostly took up the subscription, mm. if I can say it. For the fact that Zed, um, no, Zed Cars isn't on there. Star Cops is on there. Yeah. And Star Cops is virtually impossible to see anywhere. Otherwise. So yeah. it's worth it just to watch Star Cops. So some black and white Zed Cars for oh, it'd box, be wonderful. please. Yeah. I just, they haven't got much black and white stuff at all. No. Which is odd because the. I'm not sure who they're actually aimed at. I don't know if they're aimed at the sort of normal television viewer or a sort of certain level of a television viewer. Okay. But, so. But yeah, I mean, Frank Windsor's just just marvelous in in, in all these he episodes, yeah. that thing, yeah. and he is just he's just got such a handle on his character, he hasn't, has. hasn't he? Because he's he's very much in a sort of unforgiving position, he isn't is. he? Yeah. That he he's got to deal with the PCs, yeah. But he's got Barlow and and you know the 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 sort of de- what is he? He's the detective superintendent yes, as on well. his back as well. Yeah, because yeah. Leslie Sands gets some good stuff. He does in hide and go yeah. seek when he hears about yeah. uh, John Thor wanting to wanting mm-hmm. to quit. Yeah. Um, I mean, you it's... do feel that, that that sort of what is 
is very much caught up in the he's, middle, he's isn't he? He's piggy in the middle, yeah. yeah. So. And also, as well, for Frank Windsor, for the actor, he's not the lead. No. But he's there in most episodes yeah. and he's an important part of yeah. the series. That's the whole thing, you know, in the same way that we say like things like Dad's Army are sort of ensemble pieces. Yeah. So too is Ed Cars. It is. Every character gets a focus on them yeah. at some point. And I, I find that brilliant. It's it's not a soap opera, that's no. the thing. It's not a soap opera no. because the individual stories tie up within the 50 minutes, mm-hmm. but you do get the threads that, that run through. longer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that 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 I think to me is the best of both worlds, yeah. and that's yeah. what that's why I love Zed Cars and the Zed Cars characters so much because mm-hmm. they are so complex over yes. time. Yeah. And it's extraordinary as well. At one point, we're going to have to look at James Ellis's contribution to Zed yeah. Cars because he's in it right at the start, and he's I, in it. I, at the I end. think you could do a whole episode around the archive yeah. just based around um, Jimmy Ellis's. Yeah. Because Zedkar's he is—he is the one yeah. thread that follows from the start to the finish. Yeah. He's it, always there. It would there. be a fascinating thing to do, just do as yeah. much Jimmy Ellis yeah. as you, as you could he's, one he's day. He's rock yeah. solid. Yeah, um, he was late a lot of the time, but he's rock <laughs> solid <laughs> for various reasons. For various reasons, some of which he made up. But there we are. I just want to say, you know, a, a proper thank you to Frank Windsor yes. for yes. giving us a brilliant afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was marvellous. And his relationship with Stratford Johns was amazing. I don't know if they were friends offset mm-hmm. or whether they went their own ways, but they have a good working relationship. Yeah. yeah. And Barlow is not the same without Watt, and Watt is not the same without Barlow. That's very true. So there you are. Thank you very much. Right, yeah. and that is our, our new episode done. Yes. So thank you, everyone. Yes for listening and taking part yes and we'll be back again with the next episode in november probably don't know what it's going to be about no idea uh, yet yes okay we'll see you all again then okay bye-bye episode 53 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Paul Chandler, Dr. Dr. Simon Exton, Ken Moss and Martin Holmes. On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The scripts for Zed Cars, Hide and Go Seek and Happy Families were by John Hopkins. And the producer was David E. Rose.